Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to a sunny, a humid edition of Seven Investing Now, live from Davenport, Florida, about 15 minutes down the road from Disney World. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program. I am being joined today from Florida as well, though, though from inside, not from outside like me, Matt Cochran, and of course, from Houston, Texas, home of the 0-16 Houston Texans. I'll just call it in advance. Simon Erickson. Simon, I'm, I'm sorry to ding you there, but... Uh, it's going to be true, Dan. You're totally right. I, Nostradamus predicts that one as well. <laughs> you have one of the better quarterbacks in the league, and he doesn't know how a massage works. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Matt Cochran, things looking a little more hopeful for your Miami Dolphins here. Yeah, no, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, cautious optimism down here in Miami for this, so we'll see how the season goes. Got a little bit of an echo there, Matt. Not sure what is going on or if, if somebody has a, a feedback loop going. But we are going to do something uh, interesting today. We're going to talk about Amazon. Uh, and Amazon has made a deal with Big Commerce. I blinked out a bit there. Hopefully, uh, everyone could still hear me. They have made a deal with Big Commerce. And we're going to talk about whether that is a threat to Shopify. Simon, why don't you set the table with the bullet points about what uh, is happening in this deal here? Sure. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Dan. So, uh, you know, we saw um, Amazon's got a fulfillment deal now with Big Commerce because Big Commerce is putting the online storefronts out there for people to create online shops. But then a lot of a fulfillment takes a lot of work, right? A lot of infrastructure in place to get those deliveries out the door. You know, we all want one day, two day shipping. So how do you actually do the fulfillment of that? And that's the role that Amazon's playing, even for other shops that are not Amazon.com. Yeah, this is an interesting deal because uh, big commerce is basically Shopify without any of the back end. It's, it's, it's the store, and that's appealing for certain businesses. When I was in the, in the toy store business, we did all our own fulfillment. An order came in. We boxed it up. We, we mailed it. We, brought our, we didn't bring it to the post office. The post office or UPS picked it up. Uh, but Matt, am I right in saying that this is really just uh, big commerce trying to be Shopify without spending all the money? And in the long run, that seems like a really bad idea. But Matt, I'll let you weigh in first. Then we'll go to Simon. Well, the thing is, I don't know if Big Commerce had a choice, Dan. Like, you know, Big Commerce, the barrier to entry in this industry is the back end stuff. All that expensive, like warehouses and distribution facilities and logistics and fulfillment, all that stuff, that's expensive. A lot of companies can uh, throw up a website and help merchants with web building tools and uh, online marketing hacks and, and things like that. But the expensive stuff. The really expensive stuff, the barriers to entry in this industry is all this fulfillment. And with Shopify and Amazon, like taking that to the next level, it's going to be hard for these other players to keep up. So I don't know if big commerce had much of a choice in this. Now, that being said, like it's, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a huge win for Amazon, but it just kind of shows like big commercers, uh, like weak position in this field. Yeah. I look at this as Shopify, Amazon target, maybe one or two others, maybe not even one or two others are so light years ahead. But if I'm big commerce, I make this deal, but I don't stop investing in logistics. I, you have to have this deal because Amazon is like a pro wrestling tag team. You know at some point they're going to turn on you. They're going to put a knife in your back. I will point out, uh, Matt and I are both in an area, uh, we're about three hours apart, but there are hurricanes rolling through. So I apologize if I have any weather-related internet glitches. We would love your questions and comments and happy 
happy to take them, happy to talk about them. Uh, Bway79 says uh, NWO. Yeah, you know, it, it's very much if you work with Amazon, there's a little bit of evil to that. But Simon, I'll let you weigh in on this before we get to sort of the whole working with Amazon question. Dan, if you go flying out the window in a gust of wind, I'm worried <laughs> for you, man. Watch out for the hurricanes out there in Florida. <laughs> Um, I agree with what Matt said. I think that, you know, this is the industry in e-commerce that is now demanded and set a very high bar that it wants one or two day shipping, right? And this is why six years ago, Amazon goes out and it requires Kiva Robotics and it puts that into all of its warehouses, right? We've got to find a way to do this much more efficiently. That cost a lot of money. I believe it was $750 million up front, plus who knows how many billions of dollars it took to coordinate all those logistics, but that was necessary. Right. And, and everyone else doesn't have a balance sheet that's as strong enough and as deep pocketed enough as damn as Amazon's is to afford to be able to do something like that. So you've kind of got the ones at the top, just like you mentioned, are going to be able to adjust as this e-commerce industry gets more and more demanding. Everyone else is going to have to build on top of those tools like we see big commerce uh, using Amazon for the fulfillment of that. But I agree with Matt. This is a really, really big win for Amazon and puts the smaller players in a difficult competitive position. And Simon, if you could see how much Amazon spends on robot chow every month, it is unbelievably <laughs> high. That being said, so I'm going to push back here. Amazon has gone into various spaces like this before where they've tried to, you know, they've tried to, uh, to work with merchants directly. And stores have said, I don't want Amazon having my info. So technically, as a store, you may not have as much awareness that Amazon is providing fulfillment because it's going through big commerce, but you probably are aware. Simon, I'll let you go first here. Do you think there's going to be some hesitation? I, I don't know why you would ever not use Shopify and you choose to give Amazon your information. And this just seems like another way to do it. I mean, it, it, again, at the end of the day, it's like if you want to use big commerce or you want to use any other digital store that, that's not called Amazon or doesn't rhyme with Amazon, you're still giving the fulfillment to them, right? They're still taking a handsome cut of every one of the orders just for doing all the logistics for it. And so I think that Amazon doesn't care at the end of the day. If it's, if it's got the Amazon van that's dropping off the package at your doorstep after one day delivery, uh, does Amazon really care if you've got a, a smaller um platform for them to build their stores upon? I, I don't think it does. I, I still think this is a win for them, even if there's hesitation with the data. Oh, no, it's it, this is great for Amazon because what yeah. Amazon does is they can take the data and say, hey, I noticed a lot of people in uh, this zip code are ordering sweatpants. Why don't we private label Amazon sweatpants that are cheaper than whatever this business makes? And that sounds really evil, but that's like a big part of the Amazon business model. Matt, I'll let you weigh in here and feel free, folks. Ask us questions. I, it doesn't have to just be about this. We would love your questions and comments. Matt. Yeah. So, I mean, right now there's 10 million third-party sellers on Amazon. So I, I think uh, this will, there will not be a lot of hesitation, especially with this small and uh, medium-sized entrepreneurs and businesses that like are the, the, the drop shippers, the third parties that sell, that have built up an online business. I don't think there's going to be much hesitation. Now, look, now, of course, we've seen things like uh, Walmart or Target, they, Home Depot, they're not going to ever use AWS, which is Amazon's cloud services, they're never going to use like Amazon's fulfillment uh, capabilities. So you're going to see a, a, all the big retailers stay away, of course. But like the smaller merchants, they don't have much of a choice. It's it, right now it's either Shopify or Amazon. And, you know, for all the fears that Amazon might take your data, they also have a lot of customers that go to the, their website every day. So I don't think this will be too much of a 
I think there will always be some uneasiness there with merchants. But again, there's already 10 million third-party sellers on Amazon. So I don't think, uh, like, especially for the smaller merchants, no. I don't think you're going to see too much hesitation. There's also the third option, and I actually think this is where the customer growth comes from. An awful lot of stores are just using UPS and, and, and the U.S. Postal Service. Maybe they're using something like stamps.com uh, to manage some of that postal flow. But I actually think that's why a big commerce or, say, a Wix can even exist that a lot of retailers simply don't understand that someday I'm going to need this muscle of Shopify uh, to have these warehouses all over the country and be able to say, okay, I'm selling my custom headbands mostly in Texas. Wouldn't it be great if I could send a load of them to, to a warehouse in Texas and have shipping be faster? That's what Shopify is doing. That's what Amazon is doing. I'll ask Matt this question first. Uh, is this the beginning of Amazon buying big commerce? Uh, well, so what's interesting is like uh, my immediate reaction is no, but earlier this year, Amazon did acquire cells, S-E-L-Z, which is kind of the Australian equivalent to big commerce. But I think they really acquired cells, one for the capabilities they offered and as a gateway to capture more of the Australian market. Uh, and, and not to mention that a larger acquisition such as big commerce, that that's going to certainly draw more antitrust scrutiny. I think the real end game for Amazon here is to build up its third-party logistics and fulfillment services as sort of a fourth pillar to its business. I mean, they have e-commerce, they have the cloud, and they have uh, advertising. And I think they want logistics to be a fourth pillar. And they're not going to do that by gobbling up companies like Big Commerce or you know others like Wix. Uh, they're going to do that by winning their business and by offering these services. So uh, I, I don't think so, Dan. I'm actually pretty surprised that FedEx and uh, UPS aren't going more into this. Simon, your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, this is kind of Roblox for uh, e-commerce, right? You know, you, and nobody wants to go out and hire a ton of developers to build an online storefront. They just want to hire Wix or they want to hire uh, Big Commerce or somebody else like that to sell their custom headbands. If you're building, if you're making custom headbands in Texas. You're probably not making them with the Houston Texans design on them. If you're making <laughs> custom sweatpants, you're probably not selling them in Florida because I know in the winter it gets down to 80 degrees out there for you guys. But if you want to sell things, you want to focus on getting the conversion funnel as optimized as possible. You don't want to do all the developer work that costs money. You just want to say, hey, give me some tools that are low code, no code to do this. So there's a place for these companies to help with that, uh, to move through the conversion funnel of e-commerce more efficiently. But again, I just think it's a tough competitive place to be in, Dan. It's not like there's a whole lot of proprietary or IP in this. I mean, it is efficient and you get kind of a sufficient user base after a while. But when you sign something like Amazon or you work with somebody like Shopify or somebody else that's still doing the fulfillment, when people are demanding two-day shipping, I mean, you're kind of at their mercy of giving them a cut of every one of the transactions, not to mention everybody else offering similar tools. So I'm not really interested in an acquisition of big commerce by Amazon. I also am personally not that interested in big commerce as an investment opportunity because it seems like it's a tough space for me, at least for them to compete in. No, I, I agree. There's a clear winner here, and that clear winner is Shopify. But let me ask the question. We, 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 we posed it in the tease document, and Max Lucas will get to your comment. Rashid will get to your comment uh, when we switch over segments. But is this any threat to Shopify? Matt, I'll let you start here. Uh Look, on some level, yes, but no, I mean, not really. <laughs> like, I mean, sure, like now big commerce can offer like when they're after customers, they can offer like the same like delivery needs like that Amazon can. I, I think that is big and for them winning customers. Um, so on, on some level, is that a threat to Shopify? 
Yes, but Shopify is doing the hard work of building out their back end. They started that investment years ago. And uh, look, right now, I mean, I think there's two great players in this space. They're Amazon and Shopify, Big Commerce and others like Wix. I mean, to me, they're just the, the they're just the lesser players in the field. And I don't think deals like this are going to get them up to that upper echelon. Yeah, and I'll go on the record and say, don't invest in second-tier players. Like, I think we see this in the electric vehicle space. Oh, this new company is going to do – it is really hard to go from idea to reality. And obviously, big commerce is a reality. This is not a company with no customers and no revenue. But they are fighting a very uphill battle because, look, Walmart could do what Amazon's doing too. So there are a handful of players in this space. And the reality is if you have UPS, if you have the U.S. Postal Service, if you have FedEx, Shopify, Amazon, Walmart – how many more options do you need? So I'm not even sure there's a need, even if big commerce could borrow the money or raise the money to spend the tens of billions, maybe even hundreds of billions, this would require. Simon, I'll give you the last word. Is this any threat to Shopify? I mean, just putting it all together, Dan, I mean, like at the end of the day, if you were trying to build this out separately, like back to your point you made about the, the hesitation of working with Amazon. Yeah, Amazon you know, takes data and they develop things themselves. They do it with the web services group too. That's kind of how Amazon works. Because they have so much data. It's an organization that's entirely built upon data through its entire history. And so I can see how there might be, if there was a threat to Amazon or Shopify, uh, you go out there and you say, hey, we are really, really user focused. Uh, we are we prioritize customer satisfaction. You know, look at the testimonials on how much better it is to sell on big commerce than it is on Amazon. But even if you do that, and even if that part is a threat, you can't put the billions of dollars in the logistical infrastructure. You're still dependent and you're still using Amazon anyway. So do you want to be frenemies with Amazon where you're bad-mouthing them on the front end, but then you're using them on the back end? I don't think so. I think that at the end of the day, they're just kind of stuck. They say, hey, we've got a more efficient way or alternative. Uh, if you don't want to use Amazon's platform, use us. But other than that, I think it's hard. It's kind of limited market growth, I think, for, for that company. Yeah, I'm more worried about Santa as a threat to Shopify. That guy's <laughs> business model, just giving away stuff and his, his labor's free and he's magic. I'm not sure how all of that works. Martha Berry West says, uh, glad to own Amazon and Shopify. We thank you for watching the program. We're going to close out this segment with Max Lucas's comment. If you want to read that one, Simon, uh, as we've said many times, your vision is better than mine in this case. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, Max, thanks again for watching. I, I know people, he says, I know people criticize Amazon from selling Amazon labeled products on their platform. And, and is that not the same thing as what Costco is doing with the Kirkland brand? Dan, maybe this one's the best question for you to answer, huh? Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say because here's the reality. Target or any retailer looks at like how much Tylenol they're selling and goes, well, let's make a generic house brand Tylenol. And we consider that an acceptable practice. Amazon goes, wow, I'm selling a lot of iPhone chargers. Like we could make those in China and sell them cheaper and nicer. And Amazon gets, gets sort of critiqued for it. I think the problem is it's long been considered acceptable in medicine, in you know certain like hair care products or whatever. It hasn't generally been considered accessible, uh, acceptable in apparel or other areas. And look, if you're doing business with a retailer, that retailer is going to use the info from that business and it might get them. Target has done exactly that. They, they ended some of their deals with third-party merchandise providers and they have their own house brands that are, are maybe nicer, maybe the same. Um, so if I'm Levi's, which has a big deal with Target, am I a little bit worried that at some point they're going to come out with you know bullseye jeans or, or whatever it is and, and, and kick me out? Yeah, I think that's a reality. We saw Nike do that. Basically, any retailer that didn't have a differentiated Nike experience kicked out Nike. 
And that actually put a lot of smaller companies out of business. Matt, do you want to weigh in on this one? Uh, yeah, I think it's the exact same thing. Like uh, Walmart, I, I think they have like dozens of, of, of brands, like the private brands that they uh, that do over a billion dollars in business every year. Target does the same thing. Costco does the same thing. I mean, down here we have Publix. Uh, they have their, their brands. Uh, Kroger has their brands. All these large retailers have their own private brands. For some reason, when Amazon does it and puts it on their website, uh, they they get dinged for it by regulators or you know uh, or called out by regulators anyway. Uh, so yeah, I think it's the exact same thing though. It's an acceptable practice for probably a hundred years now, and uh, but now all of a sudden, you know, and, and they'll say like, well, Amazon places it on their website in a place where customers will see it first. Well, what do you think retailers do it with when they place it on the <laughs> shelves? I mean, it's just to me, it's just so silly that to 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 target Amazon, but not to target like other retailers. It is, it's an acceptable practice, and of course they're going to do it. And of course, Walmart has data on the brands they sell in store. It's the same thing. Amazon has data on the products they sell on their website. To me, it's the exact same thing. Yeah, and it doesn't always work. If you've ever perused the cereal aisle, I don't think they're selling a lot of like crazy puffs or magical charms or, you know, whatever some of those are, because there is some value in brand name. So if your brand is strong enough, you don't need it. Now, can Amazon tilt the deck? Yeah. But can I, you know, could Simon and I start a pancake mix company, um, you know, and then pay for end caps and target and buy our way into market share? Yeah, that's actually how it's done. For the most part, it's not usually I have a great product that Target wants. It's I have a product that meets Target standards and I'm willing to pay them for shelf space. So this is kind of a corrupt industry. I, I was shocked when I had my first book out that books pay for uh, book companies, publishers pay for space at Barnes and Noble on those like special tables. And when, when my book, uh, which I won't even share the title because it's I, I don't get any money when it when it uh, when it sells. But my first book. When it was on those displays, it sold thousands and thousands of books. And when it wasn't on those displays, it stopped selling thousands of thousands of books. We are going to talk SPACs as an alternative to IPOs. Before we do that, uh, I want to take the comment from Rashid. Uh, the first one, Sam. Matt, if you want to read that, that would be great. Off topic, how do you guys keep track of so many stocks you recommend every month? Do you let go slash trim old non-conviction stocks? Simon, I'll let you take that one. It's probably one you've thought about as much as anyone. We don't let Steve Symington sleep. That's the answer, isn't it? You know, <laughs> sleep is for the week when you've got stocks that you need to cover out there. Uh, we do. You know, we don't. Um, to answer the second part first of the question, Rashid, is that we, no, we do not let go of or trim non-conviction stocks. We let everything ride on the scorecard. If you visit seveninvesting.com slash recommendations, you'll see our overall returns compared to the broader S&P 500 index. That return is an absolute return since the inception of the pick. So Matt and Dan's pick from this past month, which just went live, what are we, at the ninth today? So eight days ago uh, is, is factored into that. And then also our Matt and Dan's picks from the very first month that they recommended a company for seven investing are factored into that number. But the point is it's a consolidated return. It's all on there. We haven't sold any of those positions. We're keeping conviction in them because we put a lot of thought up front of buying and holding long, long term for each piece. And we're putting our own feet to, our, to the fire that we're not just trying to jump in and out of stocks, we're holding them for the long term. Yeah, and the stocks we personally recommend, we also generally, you know, obviously feel really strong about. And I know I go through my stocks that I've picked to check to see if there's something I should update for members. Um, so one of the stocks I picked had 
sort of a major milestone. It was more like the major celebratory milestone than the actual result. So I wrote, hey, here's what, what happened and, and here's why this matters. And I think we all do that. And does that become overwhelming at times? Yes. If there's an earnings season where 10 different companies you've recommended all have big news, well, that becomes a busy week. Um, but the reality is we also all support each other. So like maybe I have a really busy month and I say to Matt, hey, I know you really like this company I picked. Could you write this update? So, you know, and I don't ever think that's happened, but that could happen at some point in the future. Yeah. So and I'll add to that too, Dan, that, you know, sometimes we make very high risk picks, you know, even though we're buying and holding, we're not just recommending low risk, $200 billion market cap companies. We're going after the small caps, uh, several recommendations, several recommendations on the scorecard have been less than $1 billion in market cap. And when you have a company that small, uh, we think that we have a responsibility uh, for for giving updates on those, saying, "Hey, what's going on? You know, what about those risks you mentioned in the original recommendation? You don't want to just buy it and forget about it for a company like that." So I think that's one of the reasons too uh, why this entire team, yeah, every advisor on the team is providing at least, if not more, than two company updates for subscribers every single month. So you've got at least fourteen uh, that are that you're able to review on previous recommendations as well as the new recommendations we roll out every month too. And most months it's well more than that. Yes, I think there is. are months I think there are months where Max has written 14 <laughs> recommendations because I think 20 last month by himself. Yes. He's picking in a space where there's a lot of development. I'm largely picking more stable long-term I mean all of our stocks are long-term but established companies. So it's not that likely and and you know, I'll, I'll, Best Buy has never been a pick of mine, but let's pretend it was. And major changes aren't happening at Best Buy on a week to week basis the way they might be at a pre revenue company or a company that has all these de risking events to come. We have a bunch of good comments. We're going to take Broadway 79's comment uh, and dig your fortune's comment after we do what, you're, what we're watching. Before we do what we're watching, so you mentioned, Simon, it's the ninth of the month. That actually surprised me because 4th of July was yesterday in my, in my brain. <laughs> Time is, is, is blending. On the first of the month, our new picks came out. So if you're a member of 7investing, on the first of the month, you get a, a huge write-up. Uh, 1,500 words is the minimum, but you know, uh, which tells you all of what, why, why and how we like this stock. So you get the key takeaway. Some people just read the key takeaway. Some people really care about management or valuation. Some people read every word. You also get to watch our pitch video. We each make a slide deck and we do a PowerPoint presentation to everyone else on the team and everyone could push back. So we have overlapping expertise. I just mentioned Matt and I cover some of the same things. Simon and I, uh, Simon was particularly interested in my pick this month. Fantastic. So he, he had questions about it. We have Dana and Max who can push back at each other. So you not only get to see why we like it, you get to see how the rest of the team feels about it. Simon, if someone wants to subscribe to 7investing, and it is a great time to do that, how would they go about doing it and what will it cost them? 7investing.com slash subscribe is the uh, link that you would go to sign up for our services that immediately unlocks our seven monthly recommendations. And then also all of our previous recommendations we've launched uh, or we've released since we launched in March of 2020. So you get access to everything. You can see all of the reports right off the bat. Uh, Dan, you mentioned several of them this month. You know, we don't disclose, of course, our recommendations publicly, but just notice to kind of get good, some broad... Notice how good I was at not right. But, but I love your pick. I love the pick that you made this month. It's, 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 in my mind, like the perfect Dan Klein pick. And then Matt and I both actually had kind of two companies this month that were kind of similar in so, some ways, 
but also very different in some ways too. So it's kind of interesting for me to read Matt's report and compare it uh, against the company that I recommended. Um, so, so that said, you know, we've got not only the reports, but we've also got those company updates that you mentioned. We, we follow along with them over time. And one of my favorite parts every month is a subscriber call on the third Friday of the month where we actually interact directly live with, with anyone who wants to attend that can ask us questions and really get into the nitty gritty and the, and the trenches. Uh, it's not just, you know, we, re we release a report and then we disappear. It's you get to ask us in real time uh, anything that you want to know that you didn't learn from the reports. And, and I always enjoy that every month as well. And Simon, not not that this is something we promised to do, but you know, this morning I answered an email about one of the picks from a member, which is a really good question. And it was something that if we were closer to the subscriber call, I probably would have pushed into the subscriber call. But the person, you know, was really on the fence about it. So I answered the question. Um, and on Thursday morning, I actually, well, Wednesday night, I got an email from one of our subscribers who had my email because I'd given it out on air. Uh, and he said, hey, I followed you over from your previous job. I see on Twitter that you're in Miami. So am I. I see where your event is. You want to grab a drink or have a coffee? And I said, yeah, tomorrow morning. Like, so, it, you know, I'm out and about in the world. If you see where I am, I'm not hiding that. I am happy to have a drink. Now, obviously, we, we, we can't do that with everyone. But if it works out and I happen to be in your neck of the woods, instead of having breakfast alone, I got to have breakfast and talk stocks with one of our members. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. So once again, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. That is $49 a month or $399 a year. We also have our special program if you're an active student. Uh, Simon, that's 87, if I remember correctly. $84, yeah. $84, three goes to me, pay 87. <laughs> and by the way, Dan, you, you can meet with everybody for coffee. I think if there's anyone on the whole planet, I can count on that you could, that you would be the one that could actually meet everybody for coffee every single day. Hey, I, um, I'm, I'll put out there, if, if you see, I, I share the dates when I'm traveling. If you wanna jump on a cruise that I'm on and, and come hang out, I'm a very social person who has spent 16 months locked in a cage where like Matt, <laughs> Matt is one of the few people I've seen in person uh, during much of this. So the last few weeks with things getting more normal have been great. We're gonna pivot. Yeah, I will add one more thing too, if, if I can, is uh, at $49 a month, we crunch the numbers on this. And you say when you put seven lead advisors and the amount of time we're putting on a daily, weekly and monthly basis into the picks and finding the most innovative stocks out there, uh, you're basically at $49 a month hiring each of us for less than five cents an hour to go and find out the, the stock market's greatest opportunities. I, I still think seven investing is the best deal on the internet. Disclaimer, I might still be biased about this. <laughs> uh, I would agree with you on that. And I've seen a lot of other services and I'm not faulting them, but we've packed a tremendous amount of value. Uh, you know, every time you've put a name out there of like, this is the person who's going to be joining us. It's kind of been like, you're, you know, and I hate to keep referencing pro wrestling, but it's like the surprise where like the guy comes in who's a big star someplace else and you didn't know he was going to be there. Like, you know, when, when you announced uh, Dana or a Nirvan or, or I'm sure me, I wasn't at that call. Uh, back when those things happened, it's an, oh my God, drop your mouth moment. So we've talked enough about us. We are going to talk, Simon, SPACs as an alternative to IPOs. Why don't you give sort of the, the overview? And then I want to talk about a little bit about how this has let some pretty questionable companies raise public money. Yeah, perfect. And one last thing on the last, I won't belabor this, but you did mention the student rate, $84 a year. We're just getting started with that. We'll have more news about that next week. Really excited about that program as well. Let's talk about SPACs though. These are special purpose acquisition companies. And this has been a craze lately. Uh, everyone seems to want to talk about SPACs. No one wanted to talk about them two years ago. In 2019, there were 59 SPACs that came public through an IPO. 
And this year, there was already more than 360 companies that have come public through a SPAC IPO. So a six-fold increase in just two years. Uh, kind of the, the, the most high-profile one of these was Virgin Galactic, right? Richard Branson said, hey, I want to bring this company public. I don't really like going through all these hoops that I have to for a traditional IPO. And he liked the idea of working with Shamath Palapatiya with social capital to bring it public more quickly and in a more capital efficient way than the traditional IPO route. And Steve and I had been really digging into this the past couple of days. Uh, yesterday's podcast, we actually gave a lot of the background about SPACs and I might divert people to, to read or, or watch that uh, rather than going through it again here today to save time. But you know, we're learning more about what SPACs are and now it's time to get into the nitty gritty of the investment returns on it. It's not just a craze, it's not just a fad, uh, a six-fold increase in two years. Now we need to start being more objective about the returns. And when you see uh, 363 SPAC IPOs year to date already, another 300 that have raised money that are looking for a target, uh, there's going to be some useful objective data that comes out of this. And so as the next step of this, one research project that Steve and I are working on right now is quantifying, first of all, what is correlated to SPAC investment returns? Uh, what do the particulars of the deal mean for investors? There are warrants. There are other, <clears throat> excuse me, factors at play that will that will affect your returns. And then who's doing really, really well? And is that rep uh, reproducible over time? So we're getting into the nitty gritty of SPACs. It's time to take a closer look at this uh, new investment vehicle and, and what it could really mean for us as individual investors. So Simon, let me throw, cor correct me if I'm wrong, but it's much easier to go public with a SPAC than with an IPO. And I haven't followed a ton of these, but I followed, say, the DraftKings uh, SPAC. And that's not a company I in any way recommend, by the way. I'm, I'm pretty negative on DraftKings, just so people understand. But basically, instead of getting a traditional S1, and we know an S1 is kind of like uh, the documents you give your mortgage company. It's the rosiest picture of the financial future. But the DraftKings S1 basically said, we're a gambling company. We, we might go out of business. We don't have any money. Like that, that was it. Like there's not a lot of info there. So is this a risk reward thing for investors where, yes, it will allow some good companies like Virgin Galactic, which I think we can all argue is a well-financed, uh, well-thought-out company, uh, whether you own it or not. Uh, I do own a very small amount, which I've said on the show before. Uh, but that being said, it also lets, you know, some pretty sketchy media companies that don't have a big upside. Like, you know, you, you can like uh, BuzzFeed all you want. I'm not so sure you want to be an investor in it. And I don't think people understand that. Is there a lot of risk for investors here? There is. And there's too many SPACs that are out there right now. But there are some good opportunities that are taking advantage of this as a way to raise capital more efficiently. And so let's walk through an example to kind of give this, make this a little bit more real here, Dan. Let's walk about, let's walk through how a SPAC would work. Okay. So you are a financial sponsor. You are going to go out and raise a whole bunch of money, and your expertise is in wrestling companies. Okay. So you <laughs> wow, that'd be a, ba a bad idea. <laughs> you've got the outfits, you've got the, the terminology, you've got everything figured out in pro wrestling. And so you say, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to raise $100 million. Okay. And this is going to be publicly traded that I can buy into. I say, great. Okay. I don't know what companies Dan is going to look for to merge with, but I trust Dan. So, I, Dan, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I'm going to put it into your SPAC IPO that you launch out there. And we don't have any clarification yet on what you want to merge with, what the final company is going to look like. I just trust you because I know that you know your stuff. And meanwhile, 
Matt Cochran has got a pro wrestling company that is privately traded. He's been running it for a long time. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about pro wrestling, but I can assume I can pretend that he's got an arena. He's got some wrestlers. He's got, you know, the marketing figured out. He's done all the operations and you approach him and say, hey, Matt, I would love to bring your company public. So now you can start issuing shares to the public market and raise more money. You can expand and you can do pro wrestling even better. So you merge with Matt's company. Matt's company was privately traded before. Now it's publicly traded because you had all the funds that you injected into Matt's pro wrestling company. And then I, as an investor, originally gave my money to you because I had faith in you and pro wrestling. Now I own the, the combined entity, which is publicly traded under a new ticker, which is Matt doing the operations of the business. And, and so kind of full circle to your question of, you know, what are the risks and what do we need to be keeping an eye on? We should be keeping an eye on, first of all, Dan, are you making good deals? Every time you make these, are you, are you returning 20, 50% for investors or all of them losing 10 or 20 or 50%? And then also what are the terms also that you have with Matt for that deal that you just did? Are you going to award yourself a lot of shares uh, because you completed the deal? Uh, is Matt saying his company is worth a hundred billion dollars and you agreed to that kind of valuation? I mean, things like this is what we really, really need to get into the nitty gritty of SPACs. It isn't uniform and cookie cutter. Every single one of those is an individual opportunity, which could be bad, which could be good or bad for investors. Yeah. And the challenge here as an investor is, uh, and I'll give an example of a SPAC looking for an, an investment. Uh, the guys at the, the, the Fenway group, uh, the owners of the Red Sox, uh, partnered with, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting his name, the gentleman, uh, Billy Bean, who is the uh, GM of the A's, who is the subject of Moneyball. And they're sitting on a half billion dollars to go buy sports uh, uh, properties. And that might be stakes in teams, that might be whole teams. And you could look at those guys and their track record and go, wow, they, they really know what they're doing. I'll buy in based on that. In my case, invest, you don't buy something because it's a SPAC. That is not, you don't, nobody buys things because it's an IPO. I mean, you shouldn't, people do. In this case, the only way I would buy a SPAC at launch is if it's a company I've been tracking as a private company. Uh, Simon, am I, am I correct in remembering Palantir was a SPAC? Um, no, no, Palantir was a direct listing, but Palantir is actually putting a lot of money into SPACs. It's kind of becoming a holding company. Going so a, a direct listing, a similar type of reporting, but Palantir was a very public-facing private company where you could follow them. In most cases, with a SPAC, just like an IPO, I would argue you should wait a couple of quarters until you have SEC documents and can actually see what their operations are right. Simon, is that me being too cautious? I'm the cautious one on the team. It's interesting. There's a lot of risk up front with, with SPACs before you land the merger. So the way that it works, again, back to your pro wrestling example, is, Dan, we typically like will give you a timer of two years to go out and land a deal. And so what happens if you get to a year and a half in and you still haven't found the right company to merge with? Are you more incentivized to go out and make a bad deal on my behalf, knowing that you're not going to get your warrants and your benefits for, for not closing a deal? Maybe that's the case, you know, or, or maybe Matt, on the other hand, is saying, oh, gosh, you know, should I should I be pressured into doing this deal with Dan, knowing that Dan has got this much money and this is going to really bring me into the limelight? Maybe I should just go ahead and do this deal with him anyway. There's a lot of personal uh, people aspects to, to these kind of deals. And. To your point, the the SEC filings, the financials, the uh, the quantitative factors are going to tell the, the truth of what's going on out there. It's 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 subjective right now that it's going to become a lot more objective in the near future, and that's kind of the part that I'm excited about as an investor. Yeah, and there's certain people. Look, if uh, if John Ledger, former CEO of T-Mobile, came out and said he's got a two billion dollar SPAC and he's going to lead the combined company. 
I would be here, have my money. I trust you. Like that is, I think pretty rare. So remember you're investing in an underlying company. There's a couple of comments on this from Sandeep David. I'm not going to put the comments up, but I, because we don't know the companies uh, and I appreciate that, that you telling us about them. But I think this is where you need to be wary is that you're going to see a lot of names that have really exciting sounding businesses that never would have made it through a traditional underwritten uh, you know, banking system. So I think this is an area where you have to do your homework more so than, you know, you should do your homework for an IPO too, but the SEC isn't doing a lot of work for you and you have to do it. Simon, I'll let you close out before we talk about McDonald's and loyalty. And I'll take the other side of that coin too, Dan, is that yes, there is less uh, regulatory requirements for the paperwork for a SPAC IPO than a, than a traditional IPO. And that might be uh, muddying the waters a little bit. You might have some less quality businesses that are going to cut corners and do the SPAC route because it's easier for them. On the other hand, every time when I say capital efficiency, which is something you'll hear me talk about all the time in SPACs, that is a huge advantage if you have a really good business. If you go out and you have an underwriter write your traditional IPO and you get $10 a share from them, but then on the first day, this, this, this shares go up to $30, you left a lot of money on the table on something like that. If you could just give get a whole lot of money directly into your business from someone who's got direct access to public funds like a SPAC financial sponsor, that is a much more capital efficient way to raise money. So if you're a really good business, do you want to do that that way rather than the traditional IPO? Yes, possibly. And this is an option that's now on the table. So it's going to cut both ways, Dan. Yes, do your homework. There's a lot more risks, but I have a lot of interest in this as an investor because I think there's really good companies who are going to do this too. Uh, Mike Fee, we appreciate your comment. Yeah, I do think the SEC is going to get a little more involved here uh, because it's going to be rare, but you are going to see some companies that should not be going public, going public as a way to cash people out. Uh, Matt, we talked about you as a pro wrestler. Here's my idea. Mr. <laughs> Mediocre Matt Cochran, a wrestler who's he's pretty good. He's not that full of himself. That, it's okay. that is that, you know, that, that is a huge contrast to, uh, you know, Mr. Wonderful or Captain Perfect or whatever else you would traditionally be. But Matt, you want to talk about something that uh, if we didn't cover this space, I almost think we wouldn't know. But McDonald's is launching its first ever loyalty program. Uh, as a lifelong fan of Grimace, uh, you know, and a member of his fan club, I find it hard to believe McDonald's has not had a loyalty program. Tell us what's happening here. Right, Dan. So I, I almost feel like it's like Walmart saying they're going to announce their website in 2015. It just feels like they're they're very late to the party here. Uh, it's going to be called My McDonald's Rewards, and customers are going to be able to earn points for making purchases uh, via McDonald's apps. And to juice it up and honor McDonald's 66th anniversary this year, they're going to be giving 66 customers 1 million reward points and uh, one grand prize winner, which who's going to score free fries for the rest of their life. Um, so look, why is McDonald's doing this? So according to Square, uh, 42% of restaurants plan to invest in loyalty programs this year. And when customers are a part of loyalty programs, they spend a lot more money at those places. So according to Paytronics, the average restaurant customer who used rewards programs spent 92% more than those who did not use rewards programs. And if they ordered takeout from those restaurants, they ordered more than twice the amount of customers who didn't use loyalty programs. So the gold standard for loyalty programs in the restaurant industry today, it's Domino's Pizza, which launched this program in 2015 and now has 27 million members, and Starbucks, which has 23 million members. And that number dipped during COVID, but it's, it's rising back up now. Wendy's, 
which just launched its own reward program last year, now has 13 million members, which really shocked me, to be honest, Dan. Like, Wendy's has 13 million loyalty members. Uh, but, like, uh, they did poach one of Domino's leading digital uh, engineers last year to lead that program. Um, so I guess the question is, Dan, is my McDonald's going to compete with these numbers from these other players? So I don't, I don't think so. Um, I did a podcast. It's going to air in a couple of weeks with the uh, managing director of the American customer satisfaction index on their restaurant report. And year after year, and I've probably interviewed uh, David Van Omberg six years in a row about this report. And McDonald's is always the lowest rated. This isn't a report that includes Subway, where I wouldn't eat with, with Matt's mouth, and Arby's, a place I've never heard of anyone who likes. So there is a customer sort of enmity to McDonald's. And when, when I asked him to dig into that, he said people go to McDonald's because of their kids or because it's convenient. So I wonder if people have loyalty. Now, will parents join because they're regularly going to McDonald's? Probably. But I actually think they are kind of late to the party here. So... But isn't it? It's almost like that old uh, Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, had a had a routine about this, like where he says, like McDonald's serves a kajillion burgers every year, but nobody says they go to McDonald's, you know. And he's like, if you run into someone you know at McDonald's, like you kind of kind of just put your your head down and like, oh, I'm just I'm just here ironically, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But they serve a kajillion burgers a year, so somebody's doing this. I mean, it can't all be kids, I, I don't think. Uh, you know, I actually. I, I think there's a lot of people who go there for their breakfast stop uh, every day. I think there's, I know they're pushing that coffee and they're 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 like trying to do pushed fancy coffee drinks like Starbucks now. I mean those those aren't kids. Um, so yeah, I, I actually think we'll, we'll see. But I think there's potential here. And one thing McDonald's does very well, we'll we'll see how they do with the rewards. But like these prizes they do, like I mean you can always go back to McDonald's Monopoly campaign from a decade ago or however long ago that was. I know it's a while ago, but you know, if they offer some big prizes to people, you know, I would up it from fries for life, but if they keep offering these kinds of prizes to get people on their app, like, I don't know. I think it has potential, Dan. Uh, so I, it does have potential. People go to McDonald's cause it's convenient. We've had this discussion about Domino's. Domino's is just re makes it really, really easy. I had to send someone a pizza the other day and I wasn't eating it. So it was easiest to send them <laughs> Domino's and, I do think, and Simon, I'll let you weigh in here. Um, I'm not any, adding any more loyalty apps to my phone unless it's a place I really, really go to a lot. I, I go to Panera Bread occasionally, and I have their app, and it never works well at payout, so I just don't use it. I don't, I don't care about the rewards that much, whereas Starbucks, I use the rewards religiously because I go there all the time. Do you think there's kind of a burnout factor here? Probably there is, but, but my only commentary for this, Dan, is am I the only one on the show that likes Arby's? Yes, you're the only one on the planet who likes Arby's. Were, were we hating on Arby's? I think those curly fries are amazing. Oh, the curly fries are fine, but the roast beef tastes like, wax, tastes like wax paper. I would rather eat the thing a slice of American cheese comes in than the roast beef at Arby's. And, and then, I, I, up and, I think our, our laundry provider is purposely cutting you out as you're dissing on Arby's right here. It's fantastic. <laughs> isn't it? the, the roast beef and cheese is great. Whenever, oh, whenever I think of Arby's, there's an old Simpsons clip where the, the all the kids from the school bus get stranded on an island, and they're sitting around the campfire that night, and one of them goes, I'm so hungry, I could eat at Arby's. And all the other kids go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I stand alone. What can I say? Simon, I'm going to fly you up to uh, to Boston, and we're going to go to Kelly's Roast Beef on Revere Beach, and then you will never eat at Arby's again. Uh, I don't think Arby's has a rewards program, Dan. I, at least I haven't seen one yet. That's where they're missing out. <laughs>
I, and I don't understand the hat either, but uh, and or, or calling your sauce horsey sauce that 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 cast calls into question all of your meat. Uh, there are a lot of great questions and comments, so we're going to skip the home stretch and we're going to get to some of those questions and comments. Uh, Bway seventy nine. This is a little bit of a ways back, Sam. So might take you a bit to find it. Uh, says, how much do you think people would pay for Amazon Prime membership? I think it could go way up. Uh, Matt, I have some thoughts here, but I'm guessing you do too. I think Amazon has incredible pricing power with Amazon Prime, no doubt. In fact, of all the subscriptions uh, like I subscribe to, like I, I can't, Amazon Prime would have to jack up their price so much for me to cancel. I think it's the last subscription I canceled. So uh, yeah, I think incredible pricing power there. I think it could go to $2.99. I think at some point there's going to be resistance. It also can't go there quickly. It is every time they send me the renewal notice, it is like, oh, like that's 180 bucks all at once. Uh, and I know there's a monthly option. So yes, they have pricing. Look, I order from Amazon like four or five times a day sometimes. Like it's just, and I, and I can, Target's four tenths of a mile from my house. I'm not at my house at the moment. There's a Publix like a mile from here. So Amazon is incredibly useful and as much as I don't think people subscribe for Amazon Prime, boy, I want to see the next season of The Boys. We're going to take the comment from uh, Dig Your Fortune. Matt, I'll let you read that one out loud. Walmart has a store in every nook and corner in the country, so building a last-mile delivery should have been a cakewalk, yet they have not innovated fast enough to challenge Amazon. Walmart can do this. is very different from Walmart did this. Uh, Dan, can I, can I chime in on that one? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually think Walmart's doing a good job with it. I got to be honest. I think yes, they were late to it. Uh, I think you could definitely make the argument there. But I think they're they're moving now in that direction. I think they're doing a good job. Uh, their online sales have improved dramatically the last several years, and uh, and I actually think Walmart's doing a pretty good job. I, I don't I don't. If somebody was going to tell me, I mean, I've I have not recommended Walmart. I have I do not own Walmart stock. But if a friend came up to me and said, "I'm thinking about buying Walmart stock," I'm not going to talk them out of it. Yeah, I actually think Mark Laurie did a great job running digital. He's he's just a consultant there now. Um, he was the the uh, Jet.com guy. And basically, when Walmart first announced free two day shipping, it was a disaster. I, I wrote many articles about it. In about six months, it got markedly better. And right now, it's not Amazon good, but it's good. It's good enough good. Uh, and I'll say Target delivery has gotten to good enough good, especially same day with shipped. So I think they were a little premature. They maybe should have done a soft launch. But I do think, and Simon, we got a comment backing you. If, if, uh, if you want to share that one, Sam, I actually can't <laughs> see it on my screen because I'm I'm trying to go in order here. Roman's uh, got like, my back, man. He says, I like Arby's horsey sauce and the curly fries too. I'm with you, Roman. I, I, I the, hate Arby's, by the way. And now I'm getting more and more fond of it. I'll eat the curly fries. I'll drink a Jamocha shake. I haven't done any of those things in a decade. But the meats, stay away from the meats. Uh, now, to be fair, I don't think I've eaten at Arby's in 20 years. So, uh, you know, <laughs> don't take my word for it. I, so. I did want to chime in about the Walmart uh, uh, comment that I think that there is utility in retail locations uh, that that is going to be healthcare. I, I think that, that Walmart and CBS have both taken advantage of the opportunity to, you know, CBS Minute Clinic and Walmart's got, you know, kind of uh, things where they can check for, for basic um, visits. And I think if that continues, you know, we're getting more and more patient focus for healthcare. Those locations are already built out and they've got traffic uh, right by neighborhoods and where people are living. So I think that, that Walmart has a big opportunity to do that too. Yeah, I think you can't do everything online as exactly the same way that you can do in person. I think that could be a big opportunity. And, 
That's a good point, Simon. And like the other thing I'll say too is five years ago, I think we spent as a family very little money at Walmart. Now the majority of our grocery shopping is there. Their curbside pickup is is pretty good. As far as convenience goes for grocery shopping for a family of six, uh, it's it's affordable and it's pretty efficient. We are dedicated public shoppers. I personally do most of my shopping at Whole Foods. Uh, that is not a snobbish comment. That is Whole Foods is the closest grocery store to my house. And I am often going grocery shopping like between a meeting and a show. Uh, and we've talked about this on air. The fact that Whole Foods offers same-day delivery, as does Walmart, as does Target, but Whole Foods has, in my opinion, the nicest selection of stuff. There are countless times where we've been recording things or having meetings, and I'm placing a Whole Foods order while we're talking because I know I want to cook dinner that, that, you know, that night. We've come a real long way. John Hines, a regular, has a question uh, about our site. He wants to know if it's possible to sort by market cap. Uh, Simon, that's a tab on our site, isn't it? Well, it's. I think he might be referring to the recommendations uh, page, John. You know, which is we, we've got limited real estate on that. It's kind of hard to figure out. Okay, you know, how much do we want to present data wise? And plus, the other challenge we found with this is we do kind of disclose in the recommendations: um, is this a small cap stock? Is this a mid cap stock? Is this a large cap? Or is this an Uber cap stock? And a lot of those kind of change over time too, um, which is the challenge of the of the dynamic nature of the recommendations page. Uh, which is, you know, is this a small cap now, but is now it kind of a mid cap and is it going up? So that one's challenging. One thing we are going to be adding to the recommendations page, which by the way is seveninvesting.com slash recommendations, is something about dividend yield. Uh, we ask, we have a lot of people that ask us about income. They want to be income investors. They want to know, are you, are you recommending companies that pay dividends? And we've realized in response to those questions we got, uh, we weren't doing a real good job of making it obvious of what kind of yield you could you could receive from dividends. So we, we are going to be adding that. I know that doesn't answer your question about the market cap, but that is something we're improving about the recommendations page. To see our recommendations, you have to be a member. If you would like to join 7investing, and why wouldn't you want to join 7investing? You get more access to the seven of, of us. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of school here, Simon, saying we all like each other, which is actually pretty unique for, well, any job I've I mean, ever no, had. I mean, yeah. there's Max. But other than Max, (laughs) there is a loving feud between Matt and Max. That's certainly true. But we are all eager to see each other. Uh, And I think that comes through in our ability to challenge each other in a way that maybe other places can't do that. Because I know if Simon has questions about my pick, it's questions about my pick. And I I really think, and and again, I'm not speaking about any specific place. I'm really speaking about TV more so than, than, but when you see us interact, we're not trying to one-up each other for airtime. And that's absolutely what's happening on CNBC or Bloomberg or the other places. Uh, so this is a challenge to you. Know, to, to you. If any of those people want to call me out, uh, I'd be happy to show up and tout sound investing on, on any of your platforms. I'm teasing a little bit. Uh, that being said, we're going to go to one last comment here. I will point out, we're going to have a crazy interesting week on, on this show next week. Uh, so I'll be doing Monday show from West Palm Beach. I'll be doing Wednesday's show from Cherokee, North Carolina. I will be doing Friday's show from Birmingham, Alabama. I am really eager for when we can do these shows like from a bar or a coffee shop and we could have members around. Uh, at some point, I promise you that will happen. There's a, an audio logistics we have to figure out for that. I want to take one last comment from Mike Fee. If uh, you want to pull Mike's first comment up, Sam, we appreciate that. Uh, Oh, no, that's actually not the one I wanted. I'm, I'm sorry. But uh, Simon, you could actually speak to this one a little bit. 
Okay, yeah, Mike says here uh, that SPACs have some legal protections regarding their often lofty and ambitious growth projections that they pitch. Let's hope the SEC cracks down on this loophole. Be careful. Mike is a good point. I think you're referring to that you can actually put projections in place into the prospectus for a SPAC IPO. Uh, that's the legal document that gets filed with the SEC and they're presented to investors. That's a little bit um, less conservative than the reporting that goes along with a traditional IPO. So it's a good point, but it is different for SPACs. Business projections are all a little bit silly. Like I've written multiple business plans. And when you're projecting out like year seven from a zero revenue startup, you're just making up numbers. And, and I think it's, it's fair to say you see that in the SPAC world. I actually wanted to take the comment on Walmart uh, towards the end, if you see that one, Sam. My apologies. Uh, I never pay attention, but does Walmart offer buy online and pick up in store like Target does? What about drive up? Matt, you can answer this one. Yeah, well, so I actually don't know about Target, but Walmart, uh, they have a great curbside uh, service for groceries, which they've been hyping a lot lately. In fact, like Dan, I think they ran a Super Bowl ads right before COVID, which was like great timing for it. But like, and we probably you started using it the year before that, but it's 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 really convenient. I got to say, my wife loves the app. This used to be, you know, for we're a family of six, her grocery shopping every week, that used to be two to three hours. And now it's down to like, you know, she spends a little time on the app getting the list ready, but like she's there for 15 minutes and uh, they load the groceries right in the trunk and she leaves and it's it's a great time saver. Uh, like, so but I don't know what ta Target offers, so I can't really yeah, compare. Ta Target offers, they offer both the same thing as does Whole Foods. Simon, I know you have to go. Why don't we tout a little bit about where you're going? Because it's another amazing service of us here at 7investing. Well, we're talking with CryptoEQ. You know, I'm going to be chatting with uh, their advisors and their, their founders um, over at CryptoEQ, which is CryptoEQ.io is their website. They've really impressed me for several years now uh, with their coverage of, of cryptocurrencies. And this is not something that we shy away with. You know, as equity investors, I'm not calling this a fad. A lot of people kind of scoff at Bitcoin. I am not one of those people. I think this is a developing trend that we really should be paying attention to. And so every month, part of the, the perks of both of our organizations, they have a, a subscription product that focuses on individual cryptocurrencies. We chat about where is this collision between cryptocurrencies and equities? You know, which companies are, are ahead of the game in adopting Bitcoin and which stocks are, are, are companies that we should consider for that? And then on the other hand of it, they, they say, you know, well, you know, what is this going to mean for the volume of trading for these cryptocurrencies that they're recommending? And so we publish those. Those are advisor updates. They go out on the 15th of the month, every single month. And uh, we're going to be chatting with them here in a couple of minutes. I'm pretty excited to talk about a bunch of stuff, um, about how, especially how companies are, or how countries are now accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. It's very interesting. We will let you go and have you back on the program. Uh, I think we'll have the entire team next Friday. So we will see you then. Sam Thanks, Bailey. Man. It is time to hit our finisher. We are nearing the end of the program. Uh, which industry will have changed the most in the long term due to the pandemic? 41% of you uh, think it's retail. 11.6% said restaurants. 22.5% said entertainment. 24.6% said travel. I actually think overwhelmingly it's, it's entertainment. Um, and, and Simon, you're still here. There he goes. Uh, I think it's entertainment because we hastened not the death of the movie theater, but the blockbusterization of the movie theater. We are not going to see small movies released to movie theaters anymore. We're going to see a lot more thoughtful consumption of entertainment. Uh, television and movies have been pushed to the home. Matt, what's your thought on this one? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I kind of think retail was already changing long term. I mean, I think it accelerated the change in retail, but I think retail was going there anyway. 
uh, entertainment, I definitely think has has changed, and I definitely agree with you about mo- your your thoughts about movie theaters, uh, but also restaurants too. I think we're seeing uh, like I think it really accelerated like these deliveries and, and uh, like pickup options and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think entertainment in the restaurant industry probably. Yeah, you mentioned it with with uh, retail that Walmart had started curbside pickup before this. Target bought shipped before right. this. Um, so I actually think we saw a change in usage patterns, but we're actually going to see a pretty big change back. And everyone assumes that digital is going to become this giant thing. Digital topped out at under 20% of sales during the worst of the pandemic for retail sales. And it's actually not forecast in the next decade to get that much higher than that. So, you know, people still like going to stores and I get it in your situation with six kids and, and a big grocery list, why it's a time saver. I cook, I want to go to the store and see the piece of chicken I'm buying, see the the salmon I'm going to cook that night. So I do order a lot from delivery services because of my work schedule. But, but I do think I still go to the mall. I still go to Target. I still go to the outlets. And most people are going to. But a lot of entertainment that we used to consume out of the house is now just easier to do at home. Uh, but any of these are good answers. That brings us to the end of 7investing now. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, that is info at seveninvesting.com. If you want to interact with us on Twitter, and we are fun people on Twitter, that is at seven. Much investing. more than real life. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I'm a fun person <laughs> well, in real me. life. <laughs> yes. no, Matt is a lot of fun too, just perhaps not at the volume he is on Twitter. Um, and we're out there. We're sharing it. We're interacting with members. If you uh, you know, tag us on something, we'll answer it most of the time. Again, I don't have my phone in my hand 24-7, but I am on maybe, I don't know, 18-6. Like, it's a lot. Uh, So for Sam Bailey, for Simon Erickson, for Matt Cochran, I am Dan Klein. I will be back Monday from West Palm, Wednesday from North Carolina, Friday from Alabama. We will see you Monday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.